what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck that no longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No. We just, he's sitting right here in front of us <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this time. No wonder there's no bread and milk on my table fuck. in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're just, fuck him. We're just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client we'd look after and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been paying us. the bed. He's doing it right now, so we, <laughs> we may as well tell people that if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Canine suticles. Yep. The best canine suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah. it. Yeah, it's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes, in Canada. In Canada. Yes, Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Well, we're we pushing for him. It's puppy class. Puppy class, yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara de Groot. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us and we she love She just Barbara. loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that literally is the thing's called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We appreciate it. Thank you, Barbara. You. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the. Did we talk about this? Have we done it? We ad have. Since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I traveled from. Where did he pick us up? What, what airport? That was, was uh, in Colorado. Colorado. He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking, this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally. He does it. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well. Like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. Dog Club, South Dog Club Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's yeah, got there. It's a there. great facility. Get yes. in, check it out. He does all the, all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. You yeah, know? he's got some cool artwork yeah, and stuff there. Check yeah. it out for yeah, sure. It's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We got a new one. Who we got? Tailored Canines. We have two. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising tier, and <laughs> yep. away we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people, yeah, gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. So yep. if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, Check it out. Tailored so they canines. do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. So thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> don't do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you bullfed. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes. But we do have to limit how many people we have. And so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser. And that you align with our ethos as well. Of that, course. That's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still trying. Has got shit pines over. <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barbara DeGroot. Amazing sugar mama. Love her. From the heart dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy hound dog boxes. Daniel Tropiano. Tropino. Dog clubs, Troppy Daniel, <laughs> Dog clubs, Australia, yeah, and new to the family, tailored canines, yeah, all the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah, mo- do. mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done, well played. Thank you, sirs and madam. Check them out. They support us. You yeah. should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. After a false start. We went a long way in <laughs> and then realized that it wasn't very listenable. Yeah. And so we're going to try again. Yeah. Why not? Here we are. When we say things like that, people probably go, oh, what were they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so let's get straight into it. Yeah. Okay. So you just came back from uh, Training with Red Team. Yes. And we... Just started a podcast. Let's be like totally transparent about everything. Yes, we will. We just did a podcast talking about primary reinforcers. Yes. What is a primary reinforcer? Exactly. And we went on to the topic of food mm. and we've bounced around so much that it really didn't make too much sense anymore. And so let's start all over again. Yeah. Because that is a more appropriate topic and we, we do think it is worth talking about. I think what we were doing was hashing it out, what we were yeah. supposed to be doing rather than actually getting into a podcast. Yeah. So this is the round two of the previous podcast that we did before. Okay. So food. Yes. As a primary reinforcer, Mm -hmm. there's lots of ways to do it. Yep. And one of the ways that both of us have told people they should do in the past, and I won't speak for you, but certainly I will tell people that they can and when circumstances dictate it, should do it in the future, is train with existential food. Mm Mm-hmm. But that has kind of gotten away. Like the what's the saying? The horses run away with uh, the no point closing the gate after the horses bolted. Yeah, well, yeah. the horses bolted on that yes. in many cases. Yeah, and so existential food training with it. Mm-hmm. Let me sort of define that. Sure. Is is when you're training with food in your sessions as mm-hmm. a primary reinforcer that you don't feed the dog at any other times, and that the dog's meals come in the training sessions. Yes. And if the dog doesn't participate in the session, if the if you're unhappy with what how the dog is doing, then the dog that could take a lot of forms, right? Like that could be just a lack of motivation, mm. and therefore not feeding the dog will increase the motivation next time because the dog will be hungrier on the next time around. Yep. Or it could look like the dog making mistakes, and then you, as a form of negative punishment not feeding the dog because it's made mistakes in that session and has to wait until next session, not make the same mistakes in order to be paid and Mm -hmm. payment is food. I think my opinion on existential food is there's a time and a place for it. Yes. And 
I think what's happened, what we've seen, and like I'm totally prepared to take some of the heat on this, and it's like we've said in the past, is that when you're talking to an unknown audience and when you're talking to a – even when you're talking to a group of people, there's a huge spectrum in the middle. Yeah. Right now we're talking to God knows how many thousands of people that are just listening in their ears. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. We don't know their experience. We don't know anything about their dog. Mm. As well as you and I both – do a fair amount of talking to camera lenses and you know, your information goes to whoever decides to click on the video, right? Whoever decides to pay the fee or if it's free or whatever. Right. So in the moment when you're actually training a dog, when you've got an actual person and with an actual handler of a dog and their dog that has a particular set of skills or needs a particular set of skills and presently has a particular personality trait and drives that are, you know, like no dog. I've never met a dog that's got completely measured drives. You know what I mean? Like that are like completely level across the playing field. Like it it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. Every Mm. dog's an individual, just like people. Yep. There are times where the prescription is, no, this dog needs to go to existential food because of who the dog is your limitations as a handler and what you want to achieve with this dog, bringing this dog back to working for every meal and proceeding that way is what we need to do. So the short and thick of it is we're trying to say that this is a tool and a technique, not a lifestyle. Yes. Yes. That's where I think I wanted to go with it before, but we weren't explaining it well and it was sort of circling the drain. Yeah. And I think when it becomes a lifestyle, I think that's when you need to really look and go, am I doing the right thing by even training this dog? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's where I was trying to get with this before. But again, it was circling the drain because I wasn't explaining my point to it well, because as I said to you, during the time that we been the first episode and contemplated the second episode, this is where students of mine had been nipping at my heels saying, you and Pat have been on the canine paradigm. You've been promoting this. You've been pushing this. And I mean, it's both of us. We were both yeah. talking. We were both chanting that, you know, several years back. And maybe not to the extent where it was understood. And as you said before, there are times where people out in the internet land or the podcast land or listening as they're driving down the road in the car, they interpret things and then they get back to us and say, well, you said this. We may not have said it that way. It may just have been interpreted that way. Or we may have left out a critical point, which we thought was clear in our heads, but other people haven't. Mm. It's like when software companies put out software and the only reason they realize there's bugs in it is when people come back and say, hey, you know, I was doing this and it crashed. Yeah. You know, like the whole system went down for me or this portion of it is completely unusable. And they say, well, thanks for letting us know. We will make a patch for it and then we'll patch our software. So this is essentially what happens in dog training. It has to happen. This is what's happened since I've been involved in, you know, my journey of of dog training three decades ago right up until now. There's been plenty of patches on it. Uh, One of the examples that I used before is that dog training is like a car body. There's a chassis that you can't change, but you can change the way the body looks and you can change the interior. You just can't fuck around with the... The chassis, the chassis needs to hold the car together. Yeah. And that's effectively what we need to do with training is understand what is the parts that we can't change and what are the parts that we must change and what are the parts could we change cosmetically if we want to. So let me make a case for existential feeding. Yep. One of the times that I do existential feeding, you can pretty much count on, mm-hmm. is puppies because I need to control when they eat. Right? Yep. I need to know when they're going to poop. 
uh, they're, you know, they puppies, you know, especially high drive kind of Malinois puppies, they'll overindulge and make, do themselves a mischief. Yep. They can make themselves pretty sick because they'll eat, you know, they're bottomless pits very often, the good ones anyway. Labradors are the same. Yeah. They'll eat until they burst their stomach. Yeah. So mm. often with puppies, I want to start using food to start showing that dog how to live appropriately, right? Yep. I want to start showing the dog, you know, there's lots of little things that I want to start um, convincing the dog to do more often. And that's the, the role of reinforcement, right? So- if I've got a young dog, typically I'm measuring out their food for the day. Now, let's not get into the conversation of what you feed dogs, right? Let's not open that can of worms. You you can feed your dog rocks all the way through to the the highest quality kibble. It's none of my business, right? The, high, the, the highest quality raw. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm doing it, right? Yeah. You can have a goddamn chef come to your house and prepare your dog's meals for all I care. It, it's don't, none of my business. Just don't feed your dogs rocks. <laughs> don't. Because if somebody goes, oh, they Put told me food and rocks. they said to eat rocks. But so puppies, I tend to not feed any treats because like that's going to be part of their diet, right? And so I think that for for starters, and we can put it in the category of puppies, but it really applies to all dogs, is the the calorie control, Mm. right? I think very often when we're training dogs and the dog's goal is to be a working dog, especially like if you're going into say PSA, for example, you got a lot of shit you got to teach that dog, man. Like there's a lot of skills that dog's going to need to learn in its life. Mm. And if every repetition towards one of those skills is a calorie above the baseline of what it gets. If it's still eating from the bowl, it's normal amount of meals. And then you're training with food. You're going to overfeed that dog. Mm. And chances are, if you've got a decent high drive sport dog, then it's going to eat as much as you give. Mm. It's going to get fat. And so that's one of the reasons why I would prescribe people going to an existential feeding program is just so that you don't overfeed your dog. Because if you're feeding from the bowl and training with food, that's going to be too much food. Yep. So the next, I think that I can paint a picture of a dog that doesn't have a huge food drive, but that is the only drive that we have that's viable to use as leverage. Mm -hmm. I think that it's not uncommon that we come across quite a few dogs that don't have any prey, right? Of course, we could tap into defense with dogs, but that's typically not what we're going to do with or achieve anything viable with pet dogs, trying Mm. to tap into defense. A lot of the times... People, you know, if we were to use that social sort of pack drive that dogs will have and we say to people, well, you have to remove relationship and outside of these working hours and use relationship as a reinforcer, that is, I think, sometimes too long of a bow to draw for some people. I think that that's something that I'm not prepared to do, like for, certainly for my own pet dogs. I, I I will do that if that is the only form of motivation that I can get. Well, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. Yeah, but for the most part, our clients aren't going to do that, yep. right? When you say to people like, no, you have to remove yourself not give the dog access to you, not give affection and love freely. You have to control that as a reinforcer. I certainly don't want to do that. Of course, like I say, there's times that that's the prescription, but that's not how I want to live with my dogs. Mm. And so if there isn't a lot of food drive, if the play within the dog is not very viable as a reinforcer and you need to bring the food drive up in that the dog actually wants to work for the food, wants to do whatever it takes to get the food, And this is the big and you have something pertinent to teach that dog. So I think that if you've got a low food drive dog and low drives sort of in general, 
you probably have the wrong dog to be trying to do cool guy stuff with. Absolutely. But, but you may have a dog that's reactive. You may have a dog that has behaviors that you want to get rid of and you want to convince to do other behaviors. Like there could be many and various reasons. Like a recall is just one of them. I want to be able to give my dog freedom. I want to be able to have my dog off leash. I want to be able to take my dog places, but I need that dog to come back when I call. And so in the learning phase of that recall, I can paint the picture where bringing that dog back to existential feeding program and only feeding him in the work sessions and using those work sessions as an opportunity to train the dog for that recall that is, you know, reliable enough that you can use it. And, you know, instead of just having to use pressure to teach that recall, it remains repetitive. The dog comes back. That would be a decent reason, I think, to go to existential feeding program. Mm. There's plenty more. I could, I could go for ages. I think another one would be that you have a dog that doesn't respond well to pressure. We sometimes get dogs that don't do well with pressure and that might be because it comes up at the line at you or they shut down, right? And every step in between that, there's lots of different reasons why a dog might not respond well to pressure. It might've had pressure used on it in the past and it found the escape to that pressure was coming up the line or it might've just shut down. Explain that coming up the line because I know people will want to know Attacking the handler. Because that's an industry term. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Sweet. So I think that coming up the line by that, I mean, and uh, as a response to pressure is some dogs learn pretty quickly when the handler says, Hey, you have to do this and you tries to compel the dog in any way, shape or form, whether that's spatial pressure all the way through to tools of compulsion, e-collar, prong collar, slip lead, that kind of stuff. The dog goes, well, how about I bite you instead? Well, that's just like the drone learning to bomb the tower. Exactly, right? Yeah, it's yeah. The, the way <laughs> – don't bring that up. I'm so scared. I heard the other day that there's a one in six chance that we're going to be wiped out by AI by the turn of the century. So anyway, that's another that's another. Well, I won't conversation. be here. Yeah. Well, hopefully by the end of the century, but it could be tomorrow. Yeah, it could be. So by coming up the line, I mean that the dog has figured out you, you how know, to solve just, the problem. Hang on, hang just on. Just derailed the whole You've just, conversation. Like that, yeah. just, that's going to give kids nightmares yeah. now. Yeah, well, it should. <laughs> they should stop creating their TikToks using these AI features. Yes, they should. One of the things that happens pretty often, you see people will try and use pressure to compel a dog to do something. Mm-hmm. There could be many reasons why a dog doesn't understand what they're trying to compel them to do. But very often when the dog doesn't understand what the pressure is meant for, the dog looks at the handler and is like, hey, what are you doing that for? And most people in that instance will relieve the pressure mm-hmm. as you perhaps should. But you certainly shouldn't find yourself in that situation is the issue. But then what you've taught the dog is because the pressure motivates, release educates, is that at the presentation of pressure, the dog should show you aggression. And the more you use, once the dog has that understanding, that's how escape and avoidance training works, is that the dog learns I can escape this pressure by attacking you or coming at you with aggression. In future, I can avoid this pressure via attacking you or coming you with aggression. So some dogs, the moment, and very rarely do dogs come like this, although it can happen, but most of the time it's learned. And so you get dogs that when you, you know, we've had, I, I've experienced dogs that you can't even get a collar on them, that they're just like, no way, because that collar could be used against me. And so I'll attack you instead of allowing you to put that collar on me. And these are dogs that are at, without the collar present, are wonderful, social, happy dogs. Mm. And as I've had to explain to people in every instance that that's the case, I say, hey, like put yourself in this dog's position. Like let's see this dog and experience it absent the collar and see how loving and social this dog is. And then when you show him a collar, he tries to bite you, put yourself in his position. He truly thinks that he survives by doing that. He's having to go against his own, like what he wants, his own social drive in order to bring out at that point, what is something akin to in a defense drive where I will do this in order to survive. I've got a story to talk to you about that. Yeah. To share with everybody. When I was a kid, 
my uncle had like a little Jack Russell and for all intensive purposes, he was a great little dog until he had to get put away at night. He developed a long list of cues because like one of your kids who doesn't want to go to bed, Mm -hmm. he would have a tantrum about having to get put to bed at night. Mm -hmm. It started off when they would just normally put him to bed. He started to become aggressive because he'd actively bite them. So then what they would do was they would get a blanket and they would wrap him up with a blanket. (laughs) But then (laughs) the the side in a sack. Well, because the side of the blanket triggered the aggression, everyone had to get off the couch. So that became the new cue. Yeah. So something down the line cued him every time because he realized, well, now it's this. Yeah. You know, now that everybody is standing up and moving away from me, that would trigger the aggression. Yeah. There were a whole bunch of things. It was like the story, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. Yeah. yeah. And it just kept becoming more and more ridiculous. But I wasn't a dog trainer then. I was a kid. All we would do is run screaming into the bedroom because the (laughs) fucking dog would go mental and like literally jump on the floor and try and attack people because he realized I'm getting taken to bed. Yeah. If I had my time again, I would have said to him, why don't you just make this more repetitive for him? Perhaps the example that you used before, existential feeding, lure him into the bedroom, feed him in there, make him feel happy about it, close it down. He's eating his food, he's happy, he goes to bed. They weren't doing it that way. Yeah. So it was just one thing catalytic into another thing. So I got to see the evolution of this happening because every time we'd go around there, it was something else. Something else would trigger the behaviour. But again, I was looking at it from a non-dog trainer's eyes. I didn't know it was happening. We were all just scared. Mm. We'd just hear, oh, we're going to put Lucky to bed. So we'd all run away. Mm. And then that would trigger him to be aggressive because he knew as soon as everyone ran out of the room – that was the cue for my uncle to come at him with the blanket, which led to him running around trying to bite my uncle. It was just catastrophic. Mm. And that was the only time that, that dog became aggressive. The, yeah. At the other time, there was no. he was a sweet little dog. He'd play with you. He wasn't dangerous. But that led everyone to believe that he was a dangerous dog because they'd just gone about it the whole wrong way and started to educate him. Bedtime is a fucked up scenario that plays out really badly. That's what we see a lot when people have a dog that has a particular issue, you know, the man in the blue hat, and then it starts to be the car and all these kinds of things. And you say, well, it's still just the man in the blue hat. It's that the dog's figured out all these things. There's just another bunch of triggers down the line. All these things take Mm. him to a man in the blue hat, right? So it's not really that he has an issue with the car. He doesn't like where the car takes him. And, And many and various things, it just goes further and further and further and the dog makes the association one step at a time so sometimes by the time the the trainer's called in there's 500 steps of association removed from the actual trigger yep and we then start trying to deal with oh god okay like he won't cross the street okay fuck we got to work on that and like all these various things when in reality there's only one problem and if we knew the source problem and we fix that all the others go away because it's only that they lead to that one problem do you remember as a kid I was trying to explain this in shaping the other day. It actually made people kind of realize how it actually works because I said dog training on a day-to-day basis is frustrating and boring. And this is why a lot of people walk away from it and they leave it undone, except when you can see the big picture and you're working with the end goal in mind all the time. So you're kind of back-chaining yourself to towards where you want to go. But do you remember as a kid when you were in class and you draw on one page, like let's say, for example, it was a rocket ship and the next page, it was just animation. So you'd animate it that when you flipped all the pages, the rocket would blast into space or circle the moon and then come back down and land or Mm. it was a missile that would hit a wall and explode by the time you drew it. But it was painstaking. You had to draw on every single page. So it might have taken you a week in class to actually get this animation. And then you'd show your mates, like you'd flick the page and you'd show. It's two seconds. Yeah, it's two seconds. 
all of that work had to go into two seconds of actual work. I was using that as an example of shaping because all of that work, you don't see it on every page. It's just a picture, then a picture with a bit more and a picture with a bit more. But the two seconds reveals the whole story. Like you Mm. see how it all plays out because you flip through it and you can see the whole play out. That happens with aggression behaviours as well. And that's what people don't realise is it's one thing that is catapulted from another thing and it's another day and it's another day and all of a sudden it's a new cue that starts to develop down the line. So the initial behaviour where it's sort of cemented from then starts to blow apart and it's like an exploded view of all these things. But you didn't see it. You just came in at the end part of the story and thought, fuck, why would and how would a dog become aggressive to that? Yeah. Like for me with watching that dog, like anybody who walked in and saw everyone running off the couch and running into rooms would have thought, what the fuck is going on yeah, here? Madness like how do, how does that happen? Yeah. You know, where does all that come from? Where did that descend from? And that came from the fact that that dog – Bedtime was traumatic for him Mm. and it was just the old lady who swallowed a fly. The Mm. next thing, the next thing, the next thing and it just catapults into this exploded viewpoint of how a dog learns behaviour against what you wanted to do. Like when you're shaping it, it's it's for what you wanted to do. It's completely in favour of what you want but with aggression, against. We're derailing again but I do want to explore something you just said, Mm. that dog training is painstaking and boring. That certainly is the case when you don't have a target. Do you reckon that's like yes, for me? Yes, but that's, that's what I'm case. saying is you and I and others of us, we begin with the end in mind, yeah. Stephen Covey's point of view. And that's the best way to do things. And that's how I tell people, you know, that's how Michelangelo created David. All people, men and women who are artists like your wife and other people, they all see it. They can yeah. see what they're building towards. They don't by chance just start chiseling or just start putting colours on a canvas. They see exactly what it should be that they're aiming towards. Yeah. And we do as craftspeople towards training. We know what it should look like. Yeah. And it may not get exactly there. And you you might say to Jane, was that exactly what you wanted? She'd go, well, not exactly, but it went a different path, but it was interesting the way I was going, so I went this way with mm. it. Or sometimes they'll say, no, it's exactly the way mm-hmm. I saw it in my mind's eye. I projected that onto the canvas or that's what I saw in the granite when I was chiseling away with it and that's what I'm aiming towards. And that's what effectively when I put my mind to it with things like that with training, I think to myself, well, this is what I want. This is where I'm going with the dog and I'm going to translate it as salient as I possibly can to this animal who has no idea what's inside my head Mm. but we're going to project it together by you know, drawing on that one page at a time. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're doing that one still shot at a time like animators do with cartoons. Yeah. Mm. All right. Let's bring it back. Bring it back. Existential feeding. Yes. I've said certainly the way to go if you're going to train with food a lot and therefore you just don't have the calories to spare. Yep. If it's the only viable reinforcer and you need to teach this dog something in order to live happily, healthily, safely with the dog – and it, the dog doesn't have a lot of drive, it has a very limited food drive, and it's not viable for you to use any of the others, Yep. no worries, that's a time. Mm. I think as well, when we're talking about fixing like severe behavioral issues, I think that putting a dog on an existential feeding program can have merit in that time. Mm. But I think, of course, like all things, you can overshoot it and you can create, you know, as we were just discussing before, I think it was the last failed episode, is that- reactivity and you know that sort of nervous hectic nature in a dog that is very often in the dog and the dog is just pushing that towards other dogs or people or whatever 
And if you get the dog too strung out on food, you can you can fix the issue going existential feeding, but then you can create a new issue because that dog is going to have that personality trait of mm. being – like you see people – like I'm certainly one of them. I get addicted to things fast. And so it doesn't really matter what it is. I can get addicted to it fast. Yep. And so often I get – addicted to doing the things that are meant to be helping me. And then I do them in a way that are no longer functional. You know, mm. I get addicted to the challenge of doing things. That's how like people who have been long-term listeners of the show will remember that I was obsessed with kettlebell workouts, right? <laughs> Until I did a 40 kilo Turkish get up and gave myself a hernia. I should never have done that. It was a stupid thing to do, but I was what started out as being a really happy, healthy addiction became a problem for me. And I end up having to stop because I injured myself so badly. I couldn't fucking do anything for a while, yep. but it was it's the same thing. It's that addictive trait. And when you get nervous, hectic, reactive dogs, they might be nervous, hectic, and reactive into some external stimuli. And you can bring them around with an existential feeding program and you can use that as leverage and you can show them because very often, or not very often, but sometimes forms of pressure aren't going to work on those dogs in those moments that can make it worse depending on, you know, there's lots of variables that go into that. But so you can fix that very often with the existential feeding program, but then you can create a new hectic, uncomfortable, nervous, reactive problem around food. So and what you're saying is use the technique as required and then quit. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then re-channel into where you need to take that dog to resolve the issue, which previously existed, now doesn't and now work with what the dog needs and requires. Yes. Yes. So what I wanted to say on existential feeding, and hopefully this is in line with what you think as well, or not, whatever, let's have a fight about it, <laughs> <laughs> is that there are times for sure when that's the way to go. There are circumstances where that's the way to go, but rarely, if ever, is that necessary for the dog's entire life. Mm. And for the most part, I think when you're using food in training, you have to look and go, okay, but why am I doing this? Like all of the things, all the primary reinforcers that you're using, why am I even using a reinforcer at all? Like what is the goal here? Like I've clearly defined my behavior, like my criteria. I know what it is that I want to mark the moment in time and say that dog, that's what I want to see more of. Given this set of conditions, that's what I want to see again. Right. Because what has happened has happened. That's what I think people forget about food and, and training in general, right? Like any form of positive or negative reinforcement or reinforcement in general is that what has happened has happened by paying the dog is only making it more likely to happen next time. It's mm. got nothing to do with what happens this time. That ship sailed. Right. So I think when you look at the training and go, okay, but why do I want to see more of this? Right. What is it about this that I want to see? And how do I want the mind state of that behavior to be like? That's how you can start deciding like, okay, well, what's my viable reinforcer here, right? Like what's the one that I'm going to use? And food is a great reinforcer for many reasons, but it's it's shitty for others as well. Yeah. I think that one of the best things about food and certainly the way that I prefer to use food, like when it, in, in a dream dog where everything comes together perfectly and I'm like, okay, this dog has all the drives in line with where I want I want a dog that can satiate. I, I don't want those bottomless pit dogs. I, I don't like, I don't enjoy those kind of dogs because I think that that's a genetic trait. There's nothing I can do about that, but I don't enjoy those dogs that are sort of always anxious and hungry for food because I think it's sometimes they can have a hard time settling. Have you ever noticed that? There's a two prong effect to that. I often use Randy as the example for that because if I use, and when I was using a toy to try and motivate him, when I was trying to channel early behaviors, 
I was getting too much drive expression and too much edginess through him from that, where he couldn't really concentrate. Mm. And what I was finding was I was getting a shift in everything that I was trying to achieve where it was fragmenting. I wasn't actually achieving what I wanted to do, so I had to use food. So even though food wasn't his preferable technique, like he wanted the ball, he just couldn't think and function yeah. properly. Yeah. As a trainer and as part of your education, you need to identify these problems early in place and start to say to yourself, you know, I am getting around to answer your question. What you need to come to terms with is, is this having a net positive effect for my dog or is it going against everything that I'm trying to achieve? And if you're finding that same thing with food, like if food is creating a drama for you, then you have to find something else. You yeah. have to move along the line like Narelle and I were doing when we were training our parrot years ago. He was going fucking crazy over sunflower seeds and his behavior, even though he wanted it, his behavior was, wasn't was indicative of what we wanted when sunflower seeds were in play. So we had to find something else along the line of his motivation list to yeah. say, you know, I'll give you this seed instead and you can have sunflower seeds at the end as the jackpot. That's yeah. it. You know, like when we're done with training, you can have them then. If the work is up to scratch, if the work is at standard, then we'll produce the sunflower seeds and you can have them. But if you don't, you just have to make do with this one and you have to miss out on that one because you didn't deserve it. Like you, you're not going to get dessert for not doing the behaviour that we require. Yeah. Maybe I'm fragmenting the way I'm explaining this myself, but it's the way that I think about it when we're doing training is we often say the student dictates the speed and pace of whatever you're doing and they also should dictate what they need at the time as well. But then – I guess looking at it like a good parent would with a child is you also need to be the good parent to say, I know you want this, but I'm your parent and I know that you need this and yeah. this is how it has to be. And we have to do that for our dogs as well. Like there are certainly times where I know what my dog wants and I know that maybe that would help but also I know that it's going to have a very short-term effect on the dog before it boils over into something else. Like as you said before, there are some dogs who can become too edgy and too frantic about the use of food sometimes where it dissipates into an alternate behaviour of something that you didn't actually want. And then you're you're finding, well, now I'm fighting with my dog. Yeah. And I didn't want to. That wasn't the intention of my whole plan. And I think sometimes when you're trying to teach behaviours and you've leveraged the dog too heavily with food. now. When I say you've leveraged the dog too heavily with food, that doesn't mean that there's a way to do that. Every mm. dog takes a different amount to end up hectic around food. Yeah, Some dogs are born that way yep. and other dogs you've really got to stress them in order to make them that way. And you would have to really put in – you would have to be a really shitty person and do it on purpose to make them hectic around food because they're just not that into it. Labradors really come into mind about dogs that are hectic around food. There's one that comes on the course every now and then for NDTF that really fucking savages people's hands like bites them to the point where it gives them injuries into the palm of their hands yeah it's not the only lab that's been on the course that's done that before there's been several of them before however what also happens is when the dog is doing that the student starts pulling their hand away from it which starts to create a prey effect which also ups the ante on the reinforcer so then the dog comes in harder and thinks oh you're going to move your hand that's a bit of fun or it makes the dog hectic about it and thinks, oh, shit, the hand's moving. You're I've got to steal it. Yeah, yeah, you're trying to take it away from me. I've got to go in harder. So there are two split mind effects which is happening in the dog then. One dog that enjoys the prey, the other dog that's becoming frantic about the fact that my food's disappearing, I have to go and smash your hand now. In both cases, what I've taught the handlers was don't push your hand away, push your hand into the dog's face. And they go, well, won't that become aversive? Won't that become a punisher for the dog? So try it. 
That's the only way you're going to find out because the way that you're doing it is not working. You're getting a cumulative anti-effect of what you actually want. So what you need to do now is push your hand into the face of the dog. Both times that it's happened in the two most recent dogs, it worked. The dog calmed down on the feeding because then it realised, well, I don't have to bite your hand so hard. And for the dog that was building up a bit of prey over it, the dog started going, I'll just tune it back a little level. And I said, perfect, you got the desired effect that you need to do. However, that sometimes doesn't always play out that way. Yeah. It depends. Let me continue making the case just for food in general. Is that food as a reinforcement for training dogs incredible, right? Like you can pay out of position in multiple ways. It could that you can click and the dog has to come to you. You can mark and throw the food in a particular way so that the dog like is set up for the next rep. I think that's one of the beauties of, you know, training with food in that way is that you can mark for the position that the dog is in or the action that the dog is doing presently, but you can pay in a way that sets the dog up to not only do the behavior again because like it wants the food, but in taking the food, it's coming into the next like rep of the behavior. So like, it's a wonderful tool in that way. Those are two versions of paying out of position, setting up for the next behavior. The other is paying in position. And, and you know, like if you're playing with a dog, if you're playing games, you know, you can give affection in position, but by giving food in position means that the dog can like static duration behaviors, you can reinforce and give value to staying in those positions. There's so many good reasons to train with food. And I know that we're not yep. like, there's precious few people left that need to be convinced to train with food at all. Mm. Right. But when we start dealing with that existential feeding, this is where I've landed on in teaching people is that you need to be able to train with, you probably are going to need to be able to train with food. And if you offer the dog food in a training environment, that's reasonable, right? Like, and I'm not talking about take the dog and overload it and, and bring in so much distraction and bringing a level of arousal for something else that is unmanageable. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in your training area. So it's, you know, a place that it's reasonable that the dog should take food that when you offer the dog food, you need it to take it, right? And if it doesn't, then that's where you're going to have to go to a form of an existential feeding program for a period of time until the dog realizes, oh, okay, this is the time and place where I have to take food. Because I've certainly experienced this many, many times where because of the places that we train and the times that we train, you might bring a dog into a training facility. This is especially when you do seminars, when they're at like daycare facilities and stuff like that, right? Mm. Even if the dog is a, an attendee of the daycare or the, the place where you're at is because the dog just makes a total different association to that place and walks in and goes, all right, this floor smells like a hundred dogs pissed on it yesterday, or this is a place where I just run around with other dogs. And that's what I'm here to do. Turns up in that mindset. And when you offer that dog food, there's no way to convey to that dog, Hey, this is it. This is the time. The only way that the dog will learn this is the time to take food is when at five o'clock that night, well, he's like, Hey, where's my bowl? And Mm. you go, well, no, man, I offered it to you earlier on today. And if so long as you are offering the dog food, it doesn't take it. And then you go home and you feed it from the bowl as per usual, then you're not going to have food as a viable reinforcement strategy. And those are the circumstances where we then say to people and the prescription is, no, don't feed him tonight. And I've been clear in the past, like I don't ever not feed my dog so that it's hungrier for training. I don't do that. What I do though, is I offer the dog food and if it doesn't want it, then that's fine. I'm not going to force it to take it. I'm not going to try and shove the food down its throat. The reason it would not want to take it 
if I'm just doing that, it, like in a certain location, is the dog has an expectation of being fed somewhere else or mm. he's not that interested in the food there. And like I said, I'm not going to like bring a dog that's off tap for something else, like a super high prey dog and put it in front of a decoy or a sheep or an agility course or whatever it is. Insert the thing that the dog would rather be doing here. That's not how I'm going to intro this with food. But if, if it's reasonable and I offer the dog food and he says, no, I'm not having that, then that's definitely the circumstance where I go, okay, cool. Well, tomorrow we'll try again. We'll mm. try again in the same place. I'm not going to ask anything of you. I'm not going to leverage you. I'm not going to demand behaviors. I'm just going to offer you the food. And if you want that food, it's free. You can have it. And then when you start getting into it, that's how I can start to go, okay, well, now that you're eating it, now we can start to use it as leverage. We can attach our markers. We can build up power for it. We can do all those sorts of things. But that is, in my opinion, what a real existential feeding program looks like is that you just say to the dog, like, Hey, when I offer you food as a reinforcer, I need you to take it. That's it. And I'm going to offer you your normal food. That's what I usually train with is I tend not to like up and down the food of what I'm going to train with. And I think, I still think that that is a fairly slippery slope to get on. Mm -hmm. I still think that when, if you offer the dog kibble, that it's, it's normal food. If that's what it eats from the bowl at dinner time, if you offer it that in training and it turns its nose up and then you go, okay, well, I'll go get the barbecue chicken or whatever. And you start working your way up. I think that that's a slippery slope that I wouldn't get on. I don't care if you start with the the highest value because that's what the dog eats from the bowl. Cool. No mm. problem. I don't I don't think that you need to bring the dog down to the lowest crappiest level of food. I think that's unnecessary. But if the okay, dog Okay, well that's a good point because that's where we were disagreeing with before. Yeah, but I've never thought that. Yeah. I've just thought that like you should train with yep. whatever it yep. is that I the dog's going to eat. I get it. Yeah. Got a question for you. Mm. Something that I was observing during my week in Canberra last week with training. Have you experienced it before where you've watched a dog unlink the conditioning that it's had with the clicker because it's been disappointed with the reinforcer available to it? And let me extend further to that. Not only unlink it, but instead of it being a Pavlovian effect, it becomes an operant effect for the dog. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's something that I noticed and it was something that I was disappointed, also intrigued by was that when the dog was marked, it did initially have a Pavlovian effect for it. But when it turned to see what it was getting, because it wasn't a expected reinforcer or a primary reinforcer, the dog was like, oh, is that it? And took it begrudgingly. Now, I know I've been around dogs enough to know what a dog looks like when it accepts something begrudgingly, like it thought, well, this is it. That's as good as it's going to get. So what it was, was it was a tug the handler gave the dog a tug and I'm not knocking the handler. I'm not knocking the training. It was something that we were able to resolve quite quickly. It was actually good. It was part of a lesson plan that we were having at the time, but the mark went off. The dog did have an initial Pavlovian response to it. It turned around the first couple of times it took it. But then as time went on, I could see this dog really doesn't want this item. Like it started to change its whole persona. Its work started to decline. Its acceptance started to decline. In fact, it started to ignore the verbal marker. So it was Pavlovian at, at one point, then it changed. So I said to the handler, what's going on here? Why are you insisting with this? And he goes, oh, this is not my dog. I'm handling this one for somebody else. But this is what my dog likes. So usually this dog likes these sort of things. And I said, interesting, because when you came in before, your dog was looking at a roll on the floor, like a white roll. And I said, can we exchange the item and, and try it for that? As soon as we did, fix the problem. The dog went straight back. You could see that the dog reconditioned to it. Once the handler was marking the dog, 
the dog was then responding in the nominal way that you would expect the dog. It was swinging around, wanted to engage in the game, and the game would liven up once again. But I thought that to myself, that's an interesting thing, and it's a phenomenon that I have seen before, which I don't generally see with food, but I have seen it with an incorrect choice of a toy before. Mm. It's interesting you say it wasn't the handler, the dog's own handler. It seems odd to me that a dog would make such a distinction between a, a tug and a rolled up towel. And but it did? That. Yeah. The follow-up questions I would have in that circumstance would be, what happened with that tug? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it might be the slobber of the other dog that was on it. It might be aversive that this is belongs to another dog. I know yeah. that there are animals in the animal kingdom, if there's an animal higher in pecking order with them and it has their odour on it, they will not willingly accept it the same way. Yeah. So that happens and horses do it, dogs do it, yeah. sheep do it. You or know? Also, like there might have been a weird association made, like, you know, the dog might have been hurt or the handler could have, you know, like there's a million things that could have happened for the dog to look at that and go, I hear my mark. Awesome. Going to get my reinforcer. And then like, Oh, oh, that's not it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the first time I've, I've observed it. And I can see like, it's not an instant unlinking of that Pavlovian effect, but over time it's a cumulative effect where you see the dog, like the dog is thinking, well, I might as well stay in the game of searching for odor because when you're marking, I'm not going to get what I want. And that's what happened mm. was the dog was being marked where before it would instantly trigger around. This time it just continued on with the searching. Really? Yes. And I thought that's interesting. And that's when it became operant and the dog decided I'm not going to do it. Was there like a reflex response to the mark and then it overcame the reflex? Like yes. I could just see it initially. That's what I mean is yeah. the reflex dissipated. No, no, no. So that like when it gave the mark, did it, like, could you see like a shudder in in the dog? Yeah, a slight one, but yeah. it was significantly reduced. It was still there. Like the remnants of it was still there. But I think the dog was side-eyeing and saying, oh, it's going to be that jute toy again. I don't want it. And the, the dog would just continue on with search. And I thought, well, that's interesting. We need to stop. This yeah. needs to be immediately addressed. That's a rabbit's warrant to go down because if that were my dog – then I would change that, right? Because like, I don't like my dog developing toy preferences. Now, of course my dog has toy preferences and every dog has toy preferences. Like different things bring on different levels of arousal. They enjoy Mm. things more and less. But if a dog said, no, I'm not playing with that. And it was a reasonable thing to ask that it play with. Then that's when I would be like, oh, why? You know, yeah, like, that, and, and I agree, those questions definitely need to be asked. They should be asked in any given situation. Like, why is that happening? Why yeah. is that so? That's another one, when, like, similar to the food kind of, oh, well, I'm not going to go and get the caviar in order to feed you and light the candles and play the violin in order that you eat. Similarly, I will for sure choose the appropriate reinforcer to bring mm. on the level of arousal that is helpful to me in that session. But if I get a dog giver like, no, I don't want that tug, I want the other tug, and he would normally be happy with that tug, usually then I'm like, hmm. But Mando did that the other day in training. Like he decided I want that sleeve and not the other one. Yeah. That habit has only just started to raise, but it's something that you and I have said we need to address yeah, this in so, future. So exactly in the yeah. moment we mm. looked at it and said, okay, well, this isn't the time to fight over this. No, not today. Yeah. yeah but, it's but not, to, not today's issue. But both of us for sure then said this is something we have to work on. Yes. And I think that's what is like interesting to me when a dog makes a choice between things that are pretty similar. Like that's, you know, the sleeves that he's choosing over is they're different linen, but they're functionally the same thing. It's yep. a bicep sleeve. They're just made by different people. They're essentially the same. And I reckon that he 
you got to remind me tonight, actually, it's a good thing you brought that up because like, I'll start with the one that he didn't want and not present the other one and see whether it's that he has like, because this is where I'm going with this is like, I have to now run a series of experiments on that in that does the dog have issues switching or does the dog have a preference? I like that one, not that one. Or is it in comparison to each other? Mm. Because it's like the, you know, the little capuchin monkey that throws the. Yes. The, yeah. yeah. He doesn't Love want that. the cucumber. He wants Love the that. grape. It's after so he sees good. His com- yeah. So in the it. video, yeah. I mean, everybody's got to watch this on YouTube. It's one of the most incredible videos where yeah. there's two monkeys and I think they're capuchin monkeys. They're in glass cages. They can see each other working and their job is to pass a rock to yep. the person. So you've yep. got to pick up a rock and pass it and they get paid with cucumber. First one gets paid with cucumber. Yeah. Second one gets but paid the, with a grape. So they're both happily working for the cucumber. The first one gets cucumber and the other one gets paid in grape. No, but they both start out. With cucumber. One gets cucumber and happily accepts it as the first reinforcer yep. until he sees his partner. But don't they get them both going on the cucumber no. and then change them to grape? No. Anyway, the point is that he was working happily for something. Yes. And then when he sees somebody That's else right. have it, he yeah. won't go. He will no longer work. And it's hilarious. He throws the fucking cucumber but at the person. The only reason I know that so well is we, we play that every almost every lesson. The, the monkey on the left happily accepts the first cucumber because he doesn't realise that the other monkey is not going to get a grape. That's the point that the professor is trying to make. He said the first time it's offered, it's perfectly acceptable until he sees inequity of one getting a a grape over him getting cucumber. One of the things I love in that video is how the monkey that's getting the grape like awkwardly won't make eye contact with the other monkey. <laughs> he's like, he's just like, nah. Yeah, but that monkey's full raging out. Like yeah, he's, oh, he's smashing his, his rock mind. on there. Yeah. 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 But anyway, so like, I think that's, what's interesting is when, when a dog starts making those sort of preferences, it's not as simple as like, oh, okay, we'll give him something else. Because in my mind, then that sort of preference then can really start to derail training. And I could be wrong, but certainly I feel pretty strongly that when you start letting a dog make preferences over reinforces, mm. then they start making preferences over the behaviors that they'll do that will lead to reinforces. Like that's sort of like a slippery slope that you start going Well, down. you got to think to yourself what happens in a pinch yeah. when I need to have a variable here on the day yeah. and I, I just don't have what the dog finds acceptable. Yeah. You know, you create a fussy dog that the dog is going, oh, well, this is not my yeah. perfect day. So again, I'm not saying that you just like shove that tug down the dog's throat and go, no, this is your, <laughs> this is play with this fucking tug. Like, I'm not saying you do that. And in the moment, you maybe the right thing to do is change to the other tug. Like in the moment. In the moment it, it was. Yeah. That's the best option. Otherwise, you've got to address a problem with the handlers. Yeah, well, now there's two criteria at once. Right. right. And so that's exactly why with Mando, when he showed a preference for one sleeve over the other, no big deal. Like we just throw that sleeve out of the way. No worries. We keep going. We mm. just work with the one sleeve instead of two because that's not what we're building this session, mm. right? Like this session, we're teaching you to target the bicep, yep. right? And making sure that you don't develop an equipment fixation, for me, that will be a different session in and of itself. Like that will be the goal of the session and we'll set up and make sure that that is the outcome that we achieve or work towards or make progress towards instead of trying to then go, okay, but shit, like we're trying to achieve one thing and and viably fix another. Yep. But I think that's what, when a dog does that kind of thing, when you don't get the reaction that you're expecting, well, when you get the reaction initially and then it derails, mm. I think for me, that's when I would like, I want to ask a lot of questions. There's always questions that must be asked and answered effectively during those criteria because as you pointed out, there is something deeper in that other than the dog's just being fussy in the moment. Yeah, mm. for sure. Did we do it? Yeah, I think we did it. Did we explain what we wanted to explain? 
I feel it was a much better attempt than the first time around. <laughs> well, there is one thing that I find very interesting. Having just finished a week with Red Team and listening to the way handlers reward their dog in Australia compared to other parts of the world. Yeah. In the US, when I've heard people rewarding their dogs over there, they're usually like, oh, good boy. Oh, he's a pretty little dog. Oh, yeah. good boy. And then you go to parts of Europe and they're like, oh, super, yeah. finer younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Australia, it's good boy, mate. Yeah. Good boy, mate. <laughs> It's quite funny for me to listen to how people in different regions of the world express joy and satisfaction and reinforcement to their dog. Yeah, that is one of the funny things, especially when you get like big tough police guys and army guys. This was the women on the course. Oh, really? I've got to say there were quite a few different agencies that were presenting at this red team event at the federal police. Some of the women there were were absolutely crackers. They were unbelievable handlers really good trainers. And one of the nice things that I did see was that some of the trainers were using food as a reward. Yeah. Yeah. On their detection dogs. On their detection dogs, Mm. which has not been a thing of the past. Mm. Mm. And what sort of feeding program were they on with that? Existential food. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the interesting ones is that I think training detection and using like training detection and teaching is one thing. Yep. But keeping food going as your reinforcer into the work Mm. That's a tricky thing to do long-term, I think. You know, like I think for me, shit, we're just about to wrap up. But for me, (laughs) like I very much like food to convey information to the dog quickly. Like for me, that's what the the role of food and training is that I can really quickly convey information to the dog, right? And I can be like, hey, that was it. Here you go. Let's go again. And, and, you know, with toys and all kinds of games and that, like there's just these big spaces between the sessions and, and, and you've got to have a vibe. You've got to be able to play. You've got to be able to have an out. You've got to get the thing back. There's a lot going on and you should have all that for sure. Mm. But if you just need to convey something quickly to the dog, food is usually the way to do it. It was working very well and it was conveying very well. Yeah, but mm. long term, I'm that, not saying don't, but then that is a different model. You're in a different model yeah. altogether there. As I've expressed before, the way that I usually do it is, well, the way that I've had to do it if I'm training on the run was utilising food to get a better stability out of my dog and then transferring to a toy as the jackpot. Yeah. Effectively, my principal motivation of everything that I'm doing these days is just use what works. Use yeah, what's yeah. getting the best out of, out yeah, of the dog sure. at the time. Conveying that in the time and, you know, addressing it as food or toy, there is a lot of consideration that has to be, well, effectively what you need to do is monitor the handler and the dog at the point in time to find out what really is the best of the situation here. There are plenty of times where I've looked at training criteria and I've thought to myself, you really should be using a toy here. And I've seen the handler using food and I thought, hmm, I'd actually... Eat my words on that. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Every handler is an individual. Every dog is an individual. And that's one of the things I think is really interesting when, and it's interesting that you say that that lab that had the issue with the tug was not that handler's dog. Mm. When you're looking at training, you've got the variable of the dog, you've got the variable of the handler, but then you have the variable of the way that they interact. There's actually three different variables there because that dog might perform a particular way and food can mean X and the toy can mean Y and there's all these things that are like in place, but it, they may be limitations of the handler that mean that that dog has to be trained that way. And then you change out the handler and then it's like, okay, now that dog can do things completely different because the handler just has the capacity to move better and to play better. And like, there's a, you know, like there's a lot of different variables in place there. That's why I really firmly believe there is no 
this is the way. You just got to know the framework and then attach that to, to build whatever you need to build. Totally agree. The only thing that I want to close on in this is for handlers and trainers is if you mark and you don't see your dog have like a nice Pavlovian response, like it doesn't have that reflex response, then you have to ask yourself what's going wrong here. Mm. Like really identify that and maybe stop training and say, okay, there's something dramatically going wrong here because if we're undoing something that's been quite effective with the dog before, we did have that reflex response. It was conditioned well and now it's not. Why? Mm. I want all trainers and handlers to have a think about that last part because for me that's a troubling thing when I see a dog that – would rather continue on with the behavior rather than come around and look for its reinforcer. Yeah, for sure. All right. That's another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, do all that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Yes. Then go do it to another one. And then get on the mailing list. You've changed. You don't want people to stick AirPods in their ears anymore. What's going on? What's happening with you? What's what's changed? <laughs> <laughs> Have you had a bad experience with this? With someone jamming an earpod yeah. in my ear? <laughs> yeah. I mean, do that for sure. The main way to spread the message of the show, do you know what the main way is? What's that? Really loud in your car. All your windows open. What, just blaring. yell it out? at? at no, the- no, just turn the actual show on really loud in your car. So like when you're in traffic or whatever, so that everybody around, instead of listening to your techno that you would normally be blasting with your windows down, just it's us. What about if you go to a work meeting and you just say to your boss, stop. Stop. (laughs) Stop. You sound like an idiot. (laughs) You're coming off stupid right now. (laughs) I think I can help with this Pam Pam situation. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. If you want to support the show, get into Patreon. Mm. Just do it. Jump into there. Yes, yes, yes. A few bucks a month gets you a giant backlog of information. There's content. There's all kinds of stuff. There's lots of shit, yeah. There's just heaps of stuff in there. And both daddies want a new pair of Apple Vision. Yeah, we need them. (laughs) We're saving up. As soon as they come out, you'll see us. People are going to listen and go, oh, you indulgent, spoiled millennials. We don't. I'm not a millennial. I'm a boomer. What am I? I don't know what I am. I I think I'm an elder millennial. You're a uh, Gen Z or something like that, aren't you? Or is that now? I'm like in the dead space in between. Yeah. I'm I'm like an elder millennial and a, a. is it Gen Z or Gen I, X? I think Gen Z's are now. Yeah. Like right. that's now. I think I'm a Gen X or something like that. Who knows? Who knows? It's so. I'm a 40-year-old man. I'm, that's 50, what I I'm am. 53. I I just turned 53. Congratulations. Literally. You yeah. made it. Yeah, I made it. You did it. Yeah. Good work. Thanks. All right. Get in the Patreon. Yeah. Get in the Teespring or yes. Spring. Yeah. Buy some cool Spring. merch. Buy yep. some cool merch. Get in there, guys. Buy some merch. Buy some stuff. We haven't put any new merch in a while. I have to, might have to get my wife on to making us something. Oh, or she did. You... She actually did, and I, I haven't put it up. Oh, really? I, I need to get the – that's why, because my hard drive crashed and I lost oh, the dear. image that you sent to me oh, well, she'll that have Jane it. did. She'll have it. Yeah. If somebody wants to make us something cool, just flick it over. Well, I think I heard somebody in our discussion group the other day saying that they want to revisit on Jetta's original arousal one. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. All right, do it. Send us an email. Give us permission to use your thing. It'll be in spring. Everyone can buy it. Yeah. All right. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the discussion group. Yes. Facebook, it's a Canon Paradigm discussion group. Get on the mailing list. Yeah, get There's on the mailing list. There's links everywhere. Yeah, do it. Do just it. Just do get it. on the mailing list. Yep. We've been paying a fortune for that thing. We haven't used it once, not yep. even once. While you're at work, just say once again to your boss, just say, look, I'll be back in a minute. I've just got to go and join a mailing list. Yeah. Then we can continue I've the just meeting. Got to, I've just got to sign up our entire workplace yep. to this mailing list. <laughs> <laughs> just make sure your IT guy's on board with it. Yep. But if you want to shoot us an email, we're info at the Canon Paradigm.com. Goodbye.